Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Colin Powell says, we're tearing the guts out of the State Department and it's mortgaging your future. And the reason for that is there's a generational impact if you staunch the flow of the diplomats who would be tomorrow's ambassadors. That's Ronan Farrow. He served in the State Department in the Obama administration and is the author of a new book on American diplomacy, The War on Peace. I speak with him about the prospect of a Secretary of State Pompeo and why the gutting of the diplomatic corps should worry us all. And we talk about his reporting on the Me Too movement, especially his reporting about Harvey Weinstein, which just won him a Pulitzer Prize. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Stay Tuned is brought to you by The Dad. When you want to break from the never-ending flurry of political news and chaos, there's The Dad. It's a new media channel for, yep, you guessed it, dads. It's not preachy. It's fun stuff made by people who don't take themselves too seriously. They're building this incredibly vibrant and diverse community of dads who are kind and caring and involved, but above all, understand what dads need the most these days, to take a break and have a laugh. The Dad just started a few months ago, and they're growing really fast. They've been on Good Morning America, BuzzFeed, ABC News, and more. You can find The Dad on Twitter. It's at The Dad. They're also on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search The Dad. And you should know, Cafe, the folks behind Stay Tuned, and The Dad are part of the same media company. Check them out. I think you'll love it. Okay, let's get to your questions. Hi, Preet. This is Suzanne from Georgia. I just saw a tweet from CNN's Dana Bash who said, just talked to Giuliani who said his role on Trump team is limited. He worked with Mueller at DOJ and as NYC mayor, Mueller at FBI. He hopes knowing Mueller can help bring the investigation to conclusion, saying it needs a little push. You retweeted Dana Bash's tweet and you commented, that's not how it works. Rudy Giuliani should know that's not how it works, right? Why do you think he would say this? Thanks, and I'll be sure to stay tuned. Suzanne, thanks for your question. I don't know why Rudy Giuliani says all the things he says. Uh, I don't live in his head, rent-free or otherwise. Um, My comment was about what he seemed to imply by his statement to the CNN reporter, Dana Bash, which is by virtue of the fact that he had some prior relationship, professional relationship, or acquaintance with Bob Mueller going back many years, that he can sort of sit down, break bread, have a beer, and the investigation will be over. And when I said it doesn't work that way, it's because it doesn't work that way. People are professionals. People deal with each other at arm's length. Rudy Giuliani may or may not be persuasive, depending on where you sit or what the facts are. But he's not going to sort of swoop in at the last minute. And because he used to be the mayor of New York City or the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, cause everything to be wrapped up in like 10 days. Mueller doesn't work that way. The system doesn't work that way. Southern District of New York doesn't work that way. And I'll point out a couple other things. One is Rudy Giuliani was last the U.S. attorney in the Southern District 29 years ago, and he hasn't been the mayor for over 16 years. So the idea that he has any particular sway 
over how that office does business and over its career prosecutors doesn't make a lot of sense. It is true that the interim United States attorney was his former law partner, but I trust and respect that Jeff Berman has recused himself, as the public reporting has indicated, and that Giuliani will be dealing with people who are doing their professional job and are not going to be swayed or persuaded simply by the fact that Rudy Giuliani used to head that office. The one time that I can remember that Giuliani came in on a case that I was involved with when I was the U.S. attorney was he called me out of the blue one Friday afternoon to tell me that he had been suddenly retained by a person named Reza Zarab, who was a gold trader from Turkey, who we were prosecuting at the time, and later he flipped and pled guilty. During this period, Rudy said he was coming in on his behalf, and he informed me that he now represented Reza Zarab and was flying that very weekend to Turkey to meet with President Erdogan to try to see if he could negotiate something and make it go away. I'm not saying it's the same thing, but there was a little bit of similar bravado on the part of Rudy Giuliani calling the sitting United States attorney and saying, yeah, I'm going to go over there and we'll see if we can work this out. That didn't work out for his client in the way he expected either. The next question comes via email from Holly. Hi, Preet, love your show. So intelligent, balanced, and yes, entertaining. You are a wonderful interviewer. Wow, Holly, that's really a great question. Oh, no, I guess there's more. On the arrival of Giuliani as Trump's most recent counselor, who pays him and others, us, the taxpayers, or him? So I presume that Giuliani has come on board. I haven't seen you know, the retention agreement or anything else, but my understanding is that Giuliani came on as a personal lawyer in the same way that John Dowd was employed. So he's being paid, if at all, by Trump directly in his personal capacity. There is a lawyer who you hear about from time to time named Ty Cobb, who's been hired into the White House Counsel's Office to sort of be the quarterback from the Trump and White House perspective with respect to the various investigations that are going on. Ty Cobb, you may like it or not like it. Uh, His salary is paid for by the taxpayers because he's a White House employee, but I believe Rudy Giuliani is paid for by Trump himself. The next question is from Emily Dorr on Twitter. At Preet Bharara, you've shared that you know many of these folks who are getting attention in the news, either from Trump or someone else in his administration, like Andrew McCabe. How has this changed your friendships with them? What you say about them publicly? Hashtag Ask Preet. Thanks for using the hashtag. So, you know, that, it depends on the person. There are people who I considered friends and have considered friends for a long time with whom I have not had a lot of recent contact. One of them is Andy McCabe. Another one is Jim Comey. Uh, and there are a bunch of other folks, both who work for the special counsel and even some lawyers who have worked for President Trump. I try to make it clear if I'm stating an opinion about somebody or about their work product or about how they're pursuing their interests, that I state the fact that I know them and I have some relationship with them. I did that with Andy McCabe. I thought it was only fair. And I did that with others as well, as I think you should know what my connections are to people before I talk about them, which is something that, you know, as you know, Sean Hannity did not do when talking about Michael Cohen. Has it changed my friendships with people? Um, not yet. You know, there's some people who, uh, for example, work with the special counsel or working on sensitive cases, and I actually make it a point not to have any conversations with them at all, not even social contact, because I don't want anyone to ever say, given that I speak publicly about things and how much speculation and cynicism there is about people sharing information they shouldn't, I just don't talk to them. I presume at some point in the future, when all is said and done, uh, many beers will be had or coffee is drunk. But until then, it hasn't really changed my relationship with folks, but it, it makes me you know, more cautious than I might otherwise be in how I interact with them. My guest this week is journalist, author, and former State Department Special Advisor, Ronan Farrow. We talk about his groundbreaking reporting on sexual assault and the Me Too movement. He just won a Pulitzer Prize for those stories. Plus, we talk about how his work was inspired by his mother, Mia Farrow. Also, Ronan has a new book, War on Peace, The End of Diplomacy and the Decline of American Influence. We'll look at the gutting of the diplomatic corps and what Mike Pompeo could learn from it. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Stay Tuned with Preet is supported by the Showtime documentary series, The Circus. Every Sunday, political insiders John Heilman, Alex Wagner, and Mark McKinnon take you inside the wildest political show on earth. More than just headlines or sound bites, The Circus gives context to the chaos in Washington, covering American politics from every angle. Don't miss new episodes of The Circus every Sunday, only on Showtime.
Listeners of Stay Tuned with Preet can go to Showtime.com and enter the code PREET to receive a free one-month trial of Showtime. New subscribers only, and offer expires April 30th, 2018. Ronan Farrow, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Can I start with something? I don't mean to embarrass you, but you said once, our culture has kind of let the Renaissance man die out. Are you a Renaissance man? God, I, I should have known that would come back to haunt me. So the deal with <laughs> with where that you comes do a from lot of is, things. So that's why I'm that here. was a commencement speech that I gave when I was the same age as the graduating class, because I had this Doogie Hauser thing where I went to college really young. Yeah, how young? Eleven. Deal with it. Eleven. <laughs> yeah. What age did you go to law school? Uh, I I deferred for two years after I got in, so I would have been like seventeen, eighteen. And then you finished law school at uh, what does that mean? Twenty. You finished law school at 20. I, I think that's right, yeah. Some, like, is it the same law school that Michael Cohen went to? <laughs> it's not the same law school. You know, the esteemed Michael Cohen, obviously, had a very different kind of legal background. You went to a law school in, in New Haven? A small law school in New Haven. Did you that's, also that's Did you also decide to, to mitigate the sort of arrogance of your quick climb by addressing your <laughs> your fellow students at Yale as well? Uh, I did not. Address? I think they would have actually like come at me with pitchforks if I had tried to do that. Our, our uh, commencement speaker was Hillary Clinton, fellow alum. What happened to her? Uh, she's in the woods in Chappaqua. <laughs> <laughs> Don't write letters, guys. So let's start with your new book, War on Peace, The End of Diplomacy and the Decline of American Influence, which is a look at foreign policy in the United States of America. Why did you write this book? I had been a little guy at the bottom of the totem pole at the State Department uh, working for a larger-than-life diplomat named Richard Holbrook, who had been my mentor of some years. I worked for him on and off for eight years and saw firsthand, even during the Obama administration, the way in which there was a shrinking space for our peacemakers and negotiators and how, especially in the years since 9-11, more and more of the development and diplomacy work that was once the domain of professionals just devoted to that was run out of the Pentagon and the CIA. And I saw firsthand, because I was in Afghanistan when the Obama administration was reviewing our posture there, a pretty acute example of a policy process overtaken by soldiers and spies. And, you know, those are great public servants, and this is not to denigrate the the men and women in the intelligence and military communities, but what I began to uncover as I dug into this was a really systemic problem where we've sidelined our diplomats and there's no room for any voices in the room except the the military and intelligence voices. When did we start sidelining our diplomats? So, you know, right now, and a lot of the book is devoted to this, the Trump administration is laying waste to the State Department. It's been accelerated. Diplomacy. Vastly accelerated. I mean, you see all these headlines talking about, you know, the purge of the State Department, the war on the State Department, and very often those headlines are accompanied by a word like unprecedented. And I think that's not quite right. It's a new extreme, but actually there's plenty of precedent that we can learn from if we care to. And, you know, one example I talk about is after the Cold War, the Clinton administration came in on the platform of it's the economy stupid and of refocusing on domestic priorities. And we ended up cutting diplomacy and development by 30% over the course of the 90s. And you can see very clearly the consequences there. We shuttered embassies around the world. The embassies that were left standing uh, were undermanned and underbudgeted. We closed two government agencies that, in retrospect, turned out to be about crucial priorities, information and arms control. And uh, we were left without the diplomatic capacity we so desperately needed on 9-11. Why did everyone go along with that? You know, you listen to Warren Christopher in the first Clinton term defending these cuts on the Hill, and it sounds almost exactly like Rex Tillerson defending them today. Um, You know, there is a, or I should say up until recently, obviously poor Rex is no longer longer with us. He gives one of his last and most candid interviews in the job in this book um, in which he puts a lot of blame on the White House for a lot of this stuff. And talks very colorfully about his fights with this administration. But, you know, the the rationale you hear every time political rhetoric is deployed that denigrates and seeks to downsize diplomacy is, you know, we can do the same work but leaner. Uh, You know, the system's not working. And and to be sure, Preet, I'm really careful in this book 
not to say that you know the State Department is perfect. I worked there. I know it's not perfect. It's it is a slow moving, ossified bureaucracy. It's got all sorts of problems. But every living Secretary of State went on the record for this book, and pretty much to a one, they agree at the very least that there are serious problems with the way in which the system is being torn down rather than reformed. Isn't part of the problem, this is true of a lot of government agencies that do good work, their good work is invisible. And so the average person, they can feel it if you cut the police department and they see fewer cops on the mm-hmm. beat or the 911 response time goes down. But the average American doesn't feel it if you close an embassy in South America. But remember, that embassy in South America is also the embassy that saves you if you get held hostage in that country. It's the, the people who screen visa applicants to keep our country safe from terrorists. You know, a lot of that work is still done out of the consular department at the State Department. This is unglamorous work. You're right that it's invisible. But it does have a tangible effect on the day-to-day lives of Americans. And, and you know, for any American who travels anywhere, it is the work of diplomats that most acutely informs the way any non-American views us. And, and right now we're seeing uh, an era beginning to dawn in which China is doubling down on spending on peacemaking and diplomacy and rapidly filling the spaces that we're leaving empty. So we're, we're surrendering a lot of profile and a lot of influence. Are there particular places going forward where you think we're especially at risk because of the thinning out of the ranks? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I talk about looming challenges in Iran, in North Korea. You know, I, I profile a lot of the experts who have been involved in the uh, various attempts at diplomacy with North Korea over the years in this book. And to a one, I think what they say is, you can get played if you barrel into a a meeting of that type and give them what they want without embedding it in a really careful strategy. And, you know, when we last made a run at the North Korea problem under Bush, we had a designated unit of subject matter experts who really knew the pressure points. And it's not quite right to say that they were a total failure. You know, they they really made inroads in our rapport with China about this issue, which is going to be a a crucial lever if we want to get out of this. Um, And on a whole other, a lot of other fronts. Right now, we're seeing an abandonment of that kind of commitment to expertise, wholesale. And do you think that that's sort of a a part and parcel of the Trump philosophy that expertise doesn't matter so much? We can put someone who has no idea what the energy department is as secretary of energy, etc.? I'll put it in the words of the whistleblowers I talked to in this book. One after another, they really, in an anguished way, talk about the abandonment and denigration of people who devote their lives to serving and deeply informing themselves about these issues. So if Mike Pompeo, who looks to be on the path to becoming the next Secretary of State, were to read your book, what's the most important thing you would want the next head of the State Department to to read and to learn from your book? I would encourage him to read the personal stories of the diplomats who were purged from the State Department in the early days of the Trump administration. Why? Because I think when you look at, for instance, one guy I profile, Tom Countryman, who was our top official on arms control. Very patriotic name. You know, I I think I say if it were a work of fiction, it would be annoying to call him (laughs) Tom Countryman. Right. And... You know, he to me embodies a lot of the misunderstandings that diplomats face. You know, they get accused of being these dusty bureaucrats who get nothing done. And in fact, you look at a guy like Tom Countryman, and he spent decades in the most dangerous places on earth, giving up opportunities to get paid a whole lot more. You know, he could have been in the private sector. Um, He's a smart, capable guy. You know, putting his family in danger and giving up a stable life to serve the country and to become, you know, the, the best expert and asset to our government that he could be. Yeah, we have Michael McFall on the show. It's not an easy life being a diplomat in a foreign country, yeah. particularly you know, when we're adversaries. And when you look at a guy like that, who has been sidelined and fired, and whose expertise has been denigrated at a time when literally that set of expertise is... Most needed. Most needed. This is, this, this is what we need as we confront these rising nuclear challenges. Uh, you know, I would hope that Mike Pompeo as you know, a compassionate person would reflect on the importance of this workforce and the extent to which it needs defending and restoring right now. So how are we going to reverse it? You you write in the book in reciting a statistic that's jarring that, you know, in addition to diplomats being decimated, the number of new recruits is down 26%. 
So that's people who are deciding whether or not to go into the diplomatic corps, into the State Department. They're saying, you know what? I got other things I can do instead. How do you reverse that? The talent flow is drying up. And there's no way around the fact that that can't be fixed overnight. You know, um, Colin Powell says, we're tearing the guts out of the State Department and it's mortgaging your future, is his quote. And the reason for that is there's a generational impact if you staunch the flow of the diplomats who would be tomorrow's ambassadors, you know, the ambassadors 10, 20 years from now. That will take time to fix. But I think that what I take away from that is that we need to start all the more urgently. Separate and apart from the book, uh, I want to get to the writing that you have done that got you the, the Pulitzer Prize recently. First, let's begin sort of where you began your background. Um, what was it like growing up in the house of Mia Farrow and Woody Allen? So I count myself as really lucky, as tumultuous as my childhood was in a lot of ways, um, you know, with a fair amount of pain and trauma. You know, my mom did this incredibly brave, altruistic thing, maybe foolish, maybe a moonshot, but, you know, she really wanted to save lives in the most literal way she could and adopted individuals who were really selected for being as... uh, unlikely to be adopted as possible. You know, people who were older, who had radical physical disabilities and psychological handicaps and who had endured unthinkable abuse and poverty. And I think that when all is said and done, I look back on my childhood and feel gratitude for having had this profound sense of public service inculcated into me. And, you know, it was impossible to avoid a sense of perspective with the kinds of siblings I had. Do you feel a push towards public service? Yeah, I I do. I mean, I I consider what I try to do with the stories I tell to be a form of public service if I'm doing it right. And does that come from your mother? Yeah, I think it does. I think it comes from my mother. I think it comes from the bravery of my siblings. And, you know, it's the old comic book trope of, like, with power comes responsibility and I don't know that I had power, but I I was fortunate in the hand I was dealt. Let me ask you this question in a broad way so you can answer it how you like. You learned some things from your mother and some push to public service from your mother. What, if anything, about how you go about furthering your career and engaging in the world comes from Woody Allen? You know, I saw from a very early age uh, just how much power a certain echelon of man in this country commands. How if you are wealthy enough and connected enough, you can profoundly distort the media cycle and profoundly shame and retaliate against vulnerable people, and particularly women uh, who would speak out against you, and uh, even really manipulate the judicial and legal process. And, you know, those were all kind of latent pieces of understanding that... I think I bring to a lot of my reporting, which has been for years about various forms of the abuse of power. Have you ever had this out with with Woody Allen directly? Uh, directly enough. You know, we, we were in touch for much of my childhood, and uh, I had, you know, supervised visitations, which were sort of a, a concession that um, had to be made to prevent my sister from seeing him. You know, judges always kept him away from my sister, because there was so much credible evidence that he had molested her. Um, and there's lots of court findings that are really astonishing in how incriminating they are. Uh, and do you believe that to be true? Oh, a- absolutely. Look, I'm skeptical. I'm a journalist. Um, but to the extent that you can ever heavily corroborate this kind of a claim, um, it's frankly astonishing that there weren't repercussions at the time. And that really is down to a powerful guy who distorted the process. Um, you know, everything from eye, multiple eyewitnesses who had no interest in making this up, uh, you know, to the consistency of her story, um, to the way in which he, you know, literally was hiring, you know, spooks to to go after law enforcement officials. These are all parts of a playbook that you still see deployed in sexual assault cases involving high profile guys. and And I think as much as any fan out there desperately wants to not believe these kinds of allegations when you, you know, care about a person's body of work, you can imagine I myself being personally connected to the guy desperately wanted to not believe this. Um, It's pretty hard to escape that at the very least there should be a 
tremendous cloud of suspicion over this guy, and he should never have been allowed near other children. Let's then jump from that to the work you did for The New Yorker that, you know, frankly, from the perspective of a lot of people, have opened the floodgates for people to talk about, expose, take action with respect to sexual abuse by powerful men. When did you think to begin writing about or investigating Harvey Weinstein? I had uh, been sort of cornered into writing uh, a column about reporting on sexual assault and abuse issues and what the ethical responsibility of outlets was in talking about Woody Allen. And that came about, interestingly, because of changes in the media landscape. So The Hollywood Reporter wrote a sort of puff piece cover story about Woody Allen. And uh, because the climate had changed so much, they immediately started getting blowback from all these feminist bloggers and you know new forces in the media landscape that just hadn't existed at the time when my sister first made the allegations but, that she made. What had changed in the climate? Because this is important mm-hmm. to the unfolding of the Me Too story and how social change happens. What was different in the, in the world and in the air? There were more women in power, for one thing. Uh, there were more platforms, which makes it harder for powerful publicists to have an iron grip on, you know, you get 60 minutes, you get the cover of Time, you get the cover of Newsweek, and you're done. That's the narrative. Uh, you can't do that anymore. So as much as there are a lot of costs to the new media landscape, in terms of justice and accountability, I think overall it's been a really good thing. And there are a lot of new voices you didn't see before. And one consequence of that was that they got all this blowback, and Janice Min again, part of a newer generation of woman editors who was running The Hollywood Reporter at the time, actually came to me and said, look, I want to have an incisive look at how journalists should cover this. You know, what, what do we do? And I, you know, I very carefully wrote that saying, look, this is personal for me. Um, however, this is how I assess the evidence to be. And I, I wrapped it up in the context of how I was also struggling to cover the Bill Cosby allegations incisively. All of this was in a time frame where women were coming forward and still very much not being heard. You'll recall the reactions to the Cosby allegations were split down the middle and one half was op-eds talking about the importance of his cultural legacy. And I think the tenor of the reaction has changed so vastly that we forget sometimes how far we've come. And so I had kind of taken this stand on behalf of my sister and on behalf of the issue uh, I had gotten plenty of blowback for it, but I, you know, I felt confident I had done the right thing. And because of that, I think sources in stories about sexual abuse, which was sort of a niche area of coverage that had been ignored by the mainstream media to a great extent, began coming to me more and more. Because they trusted you. Yeah. I, I think to an extent that was the case. So you're getting these allegations of harassment and other misconduct, and they're coming to you. How did you investigate them? How did you get people to tell you more than they were initially prepared to tell you? And how did it ultimately lead to the story you wrote about Harvey Weinstein? Well, very rapidly it became focused on Harvey Weinstein because one of the first sources to approach me, and I can say this because she's publicly said it, was Rose McGowan. And, you know, it wasn't just about her, even at that early point. Very rapidly it turned into a group of many sources. But, you know, I I do give her tremendous credit that she agreed to go on camera and on the record and suggested that I follow other leads on it. And did she suggest other leads or did they come to you? She did. The The main name that she suggested actually was a, a person whose story I corroborated really heavily with multiple people she had told at the time, what we would call legally like prompt outcry witnesses in a case. She decided ultimately that woman uh, that she did not want to be on the record or a background source and uh, to this day, I think, has not told her story. And the reason for that was fear of retaliation? Or... I, I hope people by now understand that every source in this body of reporting faced intimidation, retaliation, fears about their physical safety. Because you have to remember, you know, one of the things I exposed in the course of these stories was that Harvey Weinstein, um, through a cadre of powerful intermediaries, including David Boyes, the high-profile attorney, was hiring, you know, basically muscle in- intelligence agents that were combat-ready um, and were using false identities to kind of to insinuate themselves into people's right. lives and, and dig up dirt, yeah. And intimidate them. Yeah. You say in your New York article, one of the first ones, that sort of struck me, that you had spoken with 
I think you said 16 current and former executives and assistants mm-hmm. to Harvey Weinstein. That's a lot of people who were close to him. A lot of people. And in that same story, you're dealing with more than a dozen women. It just reached a critical mass of too many good people who were brave enough to speak saying, enough. And the landscape changed, you know, and this loops back to our earlier conversation about changes in the media. It was still tremendously difficult for both those secondary sources, the employees who spoke, and also for the women themselves to envision a world in which they would be heard when they spoke on this point. And believed. And believed, right. It seemed almost unthinkable. You know, I presume that everyone is familiar with the allegations in your reporting. We haven't talked about what, you know, basically the central allegations against Harvey Weinstein are. I think the core of the allegations are pretty simple to understand, and they're laid out in excruciating detail that, you know, I don't need to um, relive on behalf of those women who I think are glad that they can leave it behind. Um, But we're talking about multiple allegations of sexual assault and rape that were broken for the first time in, in our story in The New Yorker. But I think both for my reporting and for the reporting of The Times and other publications, the important thing here wasn't that Harvey Weinstein did these gross and criminal things. It was that we were uncovering vast systems that were not exclusive to Harvey Weinstein or to Hollywood. These are the kinds of tactics, the hiring of goons to intimidate people, uh, the manipulation of legal processes and um, you know corruption involved with currying favor with law enforcement officials. These are tools that you see deployed in industry after industry by powerful people. Yeah, these are all enablers. Yeah. I mean, most of the crimes that we investigated out of the U.S. Attorney's Office that were significant were things that people knew about for a long time. So what do you think of Cyrus Vance's role in this? Whose podcast is this anyway? <laughs> we'll get to Cyrus Vance in a moment. Um, Don't cut that part, Preet. I'm not going to cut that part. <laughs> so let's talk about the enablers and let's talk about the systems. The executives and the assistants around Harvey Weinstein, when you interviewed them and they finally agreed to talk to you, were they embarrassed that they had been quiet? Were they embarrassed that they had been enabling? Were they, were they seeking you know, to mitigate their silence from before? I think some of the blame meted out to employees of the Weinstein Company and Miramax is overinflated and they're demonized unfairly. I also think some of the blame is probably very fair. And I hope that as future people in companies where they're seeing behavior being covered up, derive a clear lesson from that, that, you know, speaking is really a lifeline for people affected by that kind of bad behavior. Let's talk about the lawyers, people like David Boyce. To what degree do you think they are to blame? And what did they do that offends you in all of this? You know, I want to be careful about what I say beyond what we've reported. Uh, I think we've been very clear about David Boy's role in this. And um, it was through a variety of law firms, but one of them was David Boy's firm, that essentially spies, private intelligence agents, were hired to dig up dirt on and intimidate uh, women with allegations and reporters following the Harvey Weinstein story. And do you think the fact that that was done as just a blanket matter, is immoral, unethical, wrong? I wouldn't say that there's absolutely no place in our society for uh, the profession of private investigation. I do think that there's absolutely no place for the legal profession, uh, especially at the elite level occupied by some of these lawyers, um, aiding and abetting the intimidation and harassment of people. I agree with Um, that. I think there's a lot of criminal implications that are correctly being uh, looked at now in multiple jurisdictions. Uh, And I think ethically, it's unacceptable. And, you know, the bar should look closely at uh, why we tolerate that kind of behavior if you're a fancy enough lawyer. So there's a particular woman whose story you tell, and that intersects with both Harvey Weinstein and some of the other lawyers and the Manhattan DA who you mentioned, Ambra Batalana Gutierrez. What happened with her? And what do you think should have happened to Harvey Weinstein in connection with his conduct towards her. So Harvey Weinstein uh, met a young Italian model at uh, an event that he was producing. Right. This is Ambra. Ambra. And the long and short of it is, you know, he invited her to a meeting at his office, which she assumed would be a business meeting. And by her account, he then groped her. I should point out, 
Also, by his account, he then groped her because one of the pieces of evidence that I uncovered and released for the first time was a recording made in the course of an NYPD sting operation that had been suppressed for several years and in which Harvey Weinstein very clearly admitted multiple times to this. She then does something that a lot of people did not do. She goes to the police. Ambra Gutierrez is a tremendously brave and savvy person. And she did, as you say, immediately go to the authorities. Yeah, and what happened when she went to authorities initially? So she ended up with the Special Victims Division of the NYPD, and they began to plan a sting operation fairly rapidly where she would go back to collect evidence. So she goes back, she's wearing a wire. She went back wearing a wire. She was terrified to do it. I really do take her at her word when she says she was motivated to help other people. She didn't want another person in that same situation. And she didn't have to do that, but she did. She that, recording has been made, that recording has been made public. I've, I've heard I made it. that recording public. And, uh, you know, with, I can't divulge the ways in which I got that recording, but I, I will say that there were a lot of people who were angry about the fact that that recording was covered up. Cyrus Vance had that recording, uh, among a lot of other pieces of evidence. Right. So there was a discussion we learned from your reporting and other sources that there was a thought about prosecuting Harvey Weinstein on the strength of her testimony, Ambra's testimony, and the recording. That prosecution never happened. So this is really the crux of all the systems that I'm talking about. So I'm glad you raised this. If we're, if we're going in this deep on, on this issue, this is a case that people should understand. They had this incredibly damning piece of evidence. And actually, the NYPD partly because they were so angry at the way this played out, did a survey of other similar groping cases where they found that, you know, on far, far less evidence, most of them resulted in arrests. And yet, for some reason, in the Harvey Weinstein case, they had the recording of him admitting to it, multiple prompt outcry witnesses. They had her testimony, which, you know, never changed for a second. They had officers on the force who found her extremely credible. And for some reason, after deliberating, the DA's office decided they would do nothing about this. But why do you think that is? Do you think it's because they were worried about losing? I'm not going to speculate about the state of mind of Cyrus Vance when he made this decision. But what I did lay out in excruciating detail in my stories is what happened behind the scenes, which is that Harvey Weinstein hired a powerful intelligence firm, K2, which is run by Jules Kroll, who's a legendary magnet in that space of private investigations. Yeah, everyone knows K2 if you're in the business. And he actually hired, uh, for the purposes of the Badalana case, both K2, which was charged with digging up dirt on her, and Kroll, which was Jules Kroll's previous firm, which was charged with destroying any evidence she had. So uh, what they did is they hired Italian subcontractors who obtained information about her past that they thought would be unflattering and damaging to her credibility. And through a number of back-channel uh, communications, they basically barraged the DA's office with this. And one thing to, that's really important to point out, Preet, is these aren't random people from the private sector calling. There is a revolving door of people leaving that DA's office and going into high-paid jobs at private investigation firms. So literally, you have the guy who was your colleague, you know, a hot few minutes ago, essentially, there's supposed to be a cool down period, but it's not very long, calling you and saying, hey, you know, this, this woman is a hooker. And, you know, David Boys on the record said she's a hooker, she's a hooker, which he, he was not happy that we quoted that. But, you know, we were very fair to him. And we were very observant of ground rules. And, uh, you know, I think it's disgusting how that played out. I think it reveals a whole lot about the way powerful people can manipulate the justice process. Do you think it's odd that DAs who have to stand for election take money from criminal defense lawyers? I'm glad you raised that because that's another thing we reported on. Obviously, Cyrus Vance was getting a whole lot of money from several of the lawyers Not involved. Just him, but you know, in, in most counties where DAs have to be elected, mm. the people that they know are lawyers and many of them are defense lawyers. And it's kind of icky, isn't it? It's extremely icky. And, you know, I think he, Vance in particular, has made statements saying he'll, you know, I think, I think he said he stopped. I think he, I think he said he stopped. But at the time of this case, you had Elkin Abramowitz, who was one powerful celebrity lawyer, and David Boyes, who was another on the Weinstein team, giving a, a lot of money to his campaigns. And, you know, everyone involved says, oh, that's incidental. It doesn't matter. It was business as usual. A lot of people gave him money. But if it's business as usual, I would put the question to anyone listening, should it be? Yeah. Look, I, well, I don't think so. Uh, I had a different position. I was appointed. 
so I didn't have to worry about running for office. It's an endemic corruption that you have in all elective office. We have it with congressmen. We have it with state legislators who have to get money from people whose interests they're going to be deciding. It seems particularly upsetting in the narrow category of law enforcement. So I think it's particularly odious there because law enforcement folks are supposed to be independent, but we do have a system in which they're elected. So the question is then, you know, how do you get elected? How do you get the money to run campaigns? I don't have an answer to that, but I think at a minimum, DAs should consider and should decide not to take money from people who will have interests of clients before those DA's offices. I think that's right. And I just want to draw the distinction as people judge this however they may. Look, I don't level accusations of corruption. I just relate the facts about what played out behind the scenes. There is a big difference when we talk about law enforcement between what the DA's office did here and what the NYPD did here. And you can take it with a grain because NYPD sources may be bent out of shape and, you know, therefore... Well, there, there's often warring between sure, the, you, the, sure. you know, the, the prosecutors and the, and the agents or the But cops. it is striking in this case that, you know, veteran cop after veteran cop looks at this fact pattern and says, that's corruption. And, you know, I won't use that word, but they do. Look, I've said on the show before, and I'll say again, a couple of things that are important to make clear. One is Cy Vance was a you know, colleague of mine. We worked together when he was, the, he still is the DA, and I was the U.S. attorney. We sometimes battled against each other for cases. We often also had our folks work together. I know him to be a person that has integrity. I've never seen him do anything uh, that I'm personally aware of that showed a lack of integrity. There is a difference, and I'm, again, I'm also not presuming to know what went on here, and some of the things that you reported on are very troubling. But there is a difference between uh, corruption and having cold feet. And, you know, I, I made it a policy a long time ago, uh, born from the time that I was a U.S. attorney, when other people, based on incomplete information, took my head off and took the heads off of people in my office for not bringing a case that they thought, based on press clippings, was worthy of being brought. And I'll tell you that in every case that we made a decision not to charge, it was based on the facts and the evidence. We were more aggressive than some and brought some cases that we ended up losing because we thought they were worth bringing. But, th but there is this distinction between worrying that you're going to take on a significant defendant, whether it's a, you know, a politician or, or a powerful person in industry, and lose in a way that's humiliating to your office versus quid pro quo. I'm not saying that either one of those things is terrific. They're both not good. I, I also wouldn't draw so hard a distinction between those two things. You're absolutely right in how you render what many sources around the DA's office told me was the logic. And I'm not saying that these decisions are simple um, or that the way in which those decisions were made was without merit. But I think the appearance of corruption was sufficiently embedded in this that it does merit further scrutiny. Yeah, look, it was totally exacerbated by the relationships between and among people, contributions made. But just I wanted to just say for the record, I don't know what happened in that case. I don't judge other, you know, given that I had a similar job. It could be that it was a terrible decision. It could be that it was a close call that some people thought one way and other people thought the other way. I know there are cases that my office didn't bring that if you asked some FBI agents, they would say, you know, they wimped out and they should have brought them. It is true. And I, I love law enforcement. And I love, you know, the cops we worked with and the FBI agents we worked with. And I had the police commissioner on the show not too long ago. But, you know, the decision about what will work in court and what is sufficient evidence to charge a crime is in the province of the prosecutor. What would you tell Cyrus Vance as he weathers criticism about this? I think you should talk about why he made the decision he did, which is easier said than done. There's lots of cases where a prosecutor decides to bring a case and you can judge it. It's in open court and you can look at the evidence and you can criticize it for being um, overly harsh or overly weak. And you can see the quality of the witnesses and you can take them to task. And there's a public airing because the process has begun. But it's a little bit more complicated when you've chosen not to bring the case. So, for example, it's very hard for the FBI or the Justice Department to show the purity of the decision not to charge Hillary Clinton. It's going to be very difficult for Bob Mueller and others to show the purity of a decision not to charge, hypothetically, Jared Kushner or to make a referral on Donald Trump. It's much harder to assess uh, the quality of the decision not to do something than to do something because it's the nature of the game. Now, prosecutors can get in trouble, too, right? if they talk too much about a decision not to prosecute. That's precisely what got Jim Comey in trouble. When you make the decision to decline, and we declined on significant people, including the mayor of the city of New York and the governor of New York, but it becomes difficult to explain fully 
in a transparent way to the public why you didn't make a particular decision when you owe it to the system and to the guidelines of the department and also to the presumed innocence of the party you chose not to charge to keep your mouth shut. So it's kind of a quandary. Do you think outside inquiries into what played out in that office are justified? I think when you have a situation where a decision is sufficiently under a cloud that you have to worry about, credibly have to worry about uh, whether there was some you know, bad, nefarious reason for doing something or not doing something, that there should be rigorous scrutiny of it. And if you've put yourself in that position because of relationships uh, or because of donations or anything else, then you know, you, you've a little bit you know, made that bed. And I think people are getting smarter about that. And I think there's been an awakening on the part of DAs about all that. I think they're completely legitimate questions to be asked, and there are perhaps ways of handling it better so that uh, you know, people have faith and confidence in the decisions that are being made. Uh, again, I'm not proclaiming that I know what happened in that case. I'm just trying to give a little bit. And I see, by the way, you've turned the tables completely on this podcast. <laughs> the misconduct that Harvey Weinstein engaged in, if journalists had sort of sniffed out that misconduct 10 years ago, do you think it could have been uncovered then? If journalistic outlets had showed more courage earlier, the story could have broken a lot sooner. That's a, that's a pretty damning indictment. Yeah. I think it is pretty damning. And it's one reason why I'm so grateful as I kind of, in a state of dazed shock, survey the impact of the story, I just feel relieved because there were so many obstacles set against it ever breaking. A whole variety of systems that came crashing down to stop me, to stop them. Um, What's an example of something that tried to stop you? Uh... Uh, there's a lot of great examples of that that I think I'll be able to talk about in the future, Preet. <laughs> Does that mean you have in the works pieces talking about the uh, efforts to obstruct or cover up what you were discovering? I think it is very clear that there's more to be said about the way these stories get covered up for as long as they do. And I hope it's clear to anyone who's familiar with my work that when I see some sort of corruption or injustice, I don't stop. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I think in a lot of ways, I'll be continuing to, to chase the concept you just alluded to. Before I let you go, I, I must say, you know a lot of things about what's important uh, to justice and seeking truth. When are you going to run for office? I have never considered running for office. And that's not a faint. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not ambitious in that particular way. Uh, I've never lived my life with that intention. I, I think our campaign finance is so broken right now that I don't know that I have the stones to confront that broken system that requires so much fundraising and so much entanglement with special interests. I know that we need good people who are willing to do that, um, and I'm flattered that anyone would ask me, but I don't think that's me. Fair enough. Ronan Farrow, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for everything you do, Preet. Thanks. I'm a fan. So this is the point in the show where I talk about something that struck me in the news. And there has been a lot of discussion in the news and in law schools and in law offices and in all sorts of places about the legal battles over some of the things that the president has done. And one of those legal battles has been about the travel ban in its various iterations. And so we'll see what the Supreme Court will have to say about it in due course. But there's another decision in another area that's gotten some attention, but not quite as much. And that has to do with what some people call so-called sanctuary cities, and the president's efforts to do by executive order what Congress has not been willing to do. And that is to take money away from cities and municipalities around the country who are not playing ball with what the president wants to do on immigration and taking away money that is very good for local programs and for law enforcement and for public safety and all sorts of other things in the community. Congress won't do it. The president has sought to do it by executive order. And just this last week... There was a case decided by the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. The caption reads, City of Chicago versus Jefferson B. Sessions III, Attorney General of the United States. It's quite a caption. And in that case, the appeals court, three judges, decided to side with the City of Chicago. And what's significant about the case to me, and should be for you, and the reason that I'm mentioning it, is that these judges decided to stand up for the rule of law and the separation of powers. And I think it's actually worth hearing what the judge who wrote for the panel wrote. 
in city of Chicago versus Sessions? Because she focused not on what immigration policy should be, but what the Constitution stands for. The judge, Ilana Rovner, wrote this, quote, Our role in this case is not to assess the optimal immigration policies for our country. Rather, the issue before us strikes at one of the bedrock principles of our nation, the protection of which transcends political party affiliation and rests at the heart of our system of government. She goes on to write, The founders of our country well understood that the concentration of power threatens individual liberty and established a bulwark against such tyranny by creating a separation of powers among the branches of government. If the executive branch can determine policy and then use the power of the purse to mandate compliance with that policy by the state and local governments, all without the authorization or even acquiescence of elected legislators, that check against tyranny, that word again, that check against tyranny is forsaken. The judge went on to say, Congress repeatedly refused to approve of measures that would tie funding to state and local immigration policies, nor did Congress authorize the Attorney General to impose such conditions. It falls to us, the judiciary, as the remaining branch of government, to act as a check on such usurpation of power. Close quote. I should point out that Judge Rovner was appointed by a Republican. Her colleague, Judge Bauer, was also appointed by a Republican. The third member of the panel, Judge Mannion, was also appointed by a Republican. And the original judge who ordered the injunction last September, Judge Leinenweber, was also appointed by a Republican. The point of all that is to suggest that this opinion gives you some evidence and proof and hope that the independence of the judiciary is alive and well, that separation of powers is alive and well, and that results in cases are not preordained by party. And that should be encouraging to all of us, especially at this time. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Ronan Farrow. Buy his new book, War on Peace. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. And I just want to say I can't answer every tweet, phone call, and email, but we do read them. They inform our show, the questions I ask, and the guests we have. So thanks for sending them. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Kat Aaron, Chris Berube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, and Jake McAbee. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.